Hello everyone and welcome to episode 11 of season 2. So good to have you here. If you're here joining us for the first time, I would encourage you to go back to episode 1 of season 1, just so the book that's being read to you makes chronological sense. Those of you who are new to season 2, I would advise you to go back to the first episode of season 2 so you can get all caught up with the story so far. For those of you who have been here this entire time, we're so close to the end now and hopefully you've been enjoying it along the way. By now you know how an episode is broken down. We'll read the chapter to you and then we go and head into the origin of ideas section where we break the chapter down and explain the ideas behind it. And then we go into the tips of the trade section for those of you who are aspiring to be authors or those of you who are already authors just looking for that little bit extra. Okay, that pretty much sums it up. So let's go ahead and get into it. I'm Wayne Telford and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Ignite the Flame Audio, where our hope is to bring people together one word at a time. Follow me, Wayne Telford, into the depths of your imagination. Scarecrow. Chapter 11. A Scarecrow's Walk. I toss a glass orb, and upon its shattering, it releases a blend of natural fluids, which incinerate upon exposure. The flames engulf and allow me to play havoc with them commandeering their vision into a realm of panic, one which I was all too pleased to maintain. I inject the first with psilocybin and methanol, which, when combined with smoke from cigarettes, hyperintensifies their already paranoid and fearful minds into cesspools of rage and chaos, killing each other and themselves in the process. I continue to throw orbs filled with arsenic pentafluoride, arsine, chlorine, cyanogen, hydrogen cyanide, nickel tetracarbonyl, phosgene, phosphine, and various others, causing a multitude of fatalities as they sweep the room and leaves blood-snitch agents gasping for breath as their lungs fill with blood and smoke from the flames which are consumed all around them. The tubes are employed, being used as fragmentary volatiles to cause localized disposal of any brew of psilocybin, creating altered vision and reality enabling me to move through their disorientation and draw closer to inspect more. Now struggling to find his escape, Moore begins to retreat, but once again I am morally torn as a beam collapses upon Nightshade and I hear her call out in pain. I look back at her and then to inspect Moore, pulling my revolver to betwixt his shoulder blades, squeezing the trigger. The barrel hisses as it spews a bullet carved with striations on its head and eyes resembling a Halloween figure. Much to my surprise, an agent is present at the inspector's back as he falls to Moore's escape. I will hunt you, inspector. Mark my immortal words. These flames will consume you in fear. All I hear in my mind is turn back for her. And as a fool, I accept. Running toward her fallen body, I check her vitals and remove the wood, revealing a pool of blood encasing her stomach. The cloud of ash thickens, and I struggle to breathe even with activated charcoal aligning my mouthpiece. I lift her unconscious body and stroll through the flames as they lick at my face and heat my touch, the metal on my apparel now scorching through to my skin, causing pain to grow with each step. As the wall of fire envelops me, the burning bodies of Alicia and agents of disarray smolder to dust as I walk over them, showing the true price of the path I trod. Out in the open, surrounded by constables armed with revolvers and rifles aimed at my appearance, I hear, All fire, lads! Get them out of there, now! As McLean heralds, beckoning constables to each end of the building, and attempts to cover the two of us from the smoke 
as it twists and distorts the structure, as tentacles from the legendary kraken to a ship, bringing about its inevitable collapse, imprisoning all those left inside. I glanced to my right, and each of the girls had made it out, unscathed to my great relief, not considering any repercussions on their part. Is she alive, Scarecrow? Her pulse is weak. I need to return her to my asylum. Only there can I treat her wounds. Very well. I'll accompany you there. Thank you, Sergeant. We ascend into an ambulance carriage, and trundle toward the safety of my asylum. Each building rushes past at speeds unparalleled, yet inside time is slowed. As I struggled to revive, she that I never wished harmed, yet another life I had lost to my dark pursuits. Scarcrow, she whispers, pulling me close by the collar. I am here. I am always here, at your side, where I belong. Take off the mask. Very well. I relinquish command and pull the noose from my neck, laying it to my side, but with hands still holding it close. If only they could see what I see. Fragile mind so afraid for others, bearing the weight of the world on your shoulders enough so as to kill all happiness within your soul, as you blame yourself for the wrongdoings of those you loved. So misunderstood, and yet... I see your mind. I see the angel that wishes to be free from this prison of flesh. You know me better than I know myself. Now rest, and you will be all right. I promise. Don't promise... Why? You cannot promise what you cannot keep. I am the master here, and I will promise, for my lord is over death, and you will remain, for my prayers will be answered, and if I am to remain imprisoned in flesh, then why not share it with another imprisoned angel? I am hardly an angel. We are all fallen, Charlotte. It takes the likes of us to raise each other up once more to our feet. As she coughs up blood over her throat and lower jaw, she struggles for breath. As I fear the end, I grab her hand and proclaim, Do you believe? She lays her hand upon my heart and replies, I always have. I will see you at his side. My love, I will wait for you. I promise. How can you make that which you can't keep? I am the master here, and I promise you I will wait. <laughs> As she draws her last breath, she lies her head to the left, closing her eyes to a pool of blood now streaming from her face and eyes. Charlotte? I ask, as though to bring her back, but alas, my lord had claimed her from me, and silenced pain, once and for all. I'm sorry, doctor. McLean states as he places his hand over the blades of my back, hunched over with head lowered to her memory, holding back the tears as my heart screams her name, trying to remain strong, showing no feeling just the way my life had taught me. For tears did not move mountains, but a heart of stone could control a nation, a kingdom, an empire. McLean, how soon can your men be ready to move? Effective immediately, Doctor. Why? We're going to hunt Inspector Moore until I see him hang. I place the mask back over my head and sit by my fallen angel's side. I turn toward him. Are you willing to condemn one of your own? Wouldn't be the first time, Scarcrow. Good. Then we proceed to Black Street to see a man by the name of Jack in the Box, and all will come to an end. What of Nightshade? Let me handle that. It is my burden to bear alone. You shouldn't have to, Scarecrow. It is the cross I bear, and I would not have it any other way. 
my asylum littered with the dead I have laid to rest, all of them calling to me as I sleep and comforting me as I wake. I understand, Scarecrow, and as I lay this one to the ashes, I will add another to the list of those I have yet to see once more as the day grows closer that I join them, a day I find myself calling for more and more lately. How soon? Have your men ready to move at my signal, and tell them not to resist at any instance, for it will cost them their lives, either at Bloodsnitch hands or mine. Understood, Scarecrow. What should we follow? A dark stallion and rider who bears resemblance to a scarecrow, the angel of death incarnate. A horseman, if ever I saw one. Indeed. As we approach the asylum, McLean veils Charlotte's body and lifts her one end, and I support the other. My ravens flock to my side, realizing my grief and beginning to weep. Hold your tears, young ones, and face death. Fear not. They open the doors and hallways all the way to the morgue, where I had laid so many to rest previous, maintaining her body for her family to mourn. As I close the curtain of metal, I place my hands upon it and mutter, Now only time separates us. I will return to you. As my ravens gather around me and try to convince me not to leave, as I may share a similar fate. Where is Obsidian? Restored, Doctor, and awaiting your arrival in the stables. Excellent, my ravens. Now comes the time for hiding, as I try to slay my former master. It may come back to haunt you, so I urge you to follow this trail left to me in a compass, and meet me there when the time is right. Understood? Yes, Doctor. We understand. Good. Now gather your belongings and take those as well. Drawing attention to all they had crafted from my profession across the years, including the glass orbs and chemical weaponry which once adorned my arms. And obsidian. I ride him to the gates of Hades and seek to claim back what is mine, the truth and freedom from my past. It is a road I must walk alone. We understand, Scarecrow. Now, my ravens, be free. They rush to their rooms and scatter their possessions in suitcases of various sizes, bagging all objects they deem valuable, trusting my word to the very letter, almost inspiring. I walk out toward the stables, and am greeted by a swirling wind, which whips up leaves of varying color and texture, caressing my chest and head as a loved one's embrace. I open my eyes, and the doors to the stables swing wide, releasing obsidian to my care one more time, fashioned with a black leather and metal saddle, and rain set, appearing as from centuries past. I climb his side and lay my legs to his stride, sheathing them as the final outlaw of London upon his fourth of the apocalypse ready to consume all those whose day of reckoning had come. For fear was my weapon now, and darkness my ally, which I would use to find the truth and break the shackles which held this empire captive, a darkness which none could control but one bloodsnitch. As I ride obsidian from the stables, ash falls from his exterior, accompanied with smoke and embers covering almost his entire lower half, my glass orb shining and gun glistening in the sun, as this harbinger of death rides to his final chapter. The streets call to me, and each citizen points in fear as I hearken, reckoning. But fear soon turns to renewal, as the absence of doubt breeds desire. Children looking and pointing as I rally past them, screaming and calling as I ride so as to summon those to my cause. The constables stream from Scotland Yard and run behind me as I lead them to battle, guns in hand and truncheons in belts, with a prayer on their lips and hope in their hearts as we seek redemption through true pursuit of justice. 
to extinguish the darkness within. Right, lads, as Scarecrow gives the signal, we will enter and arrest everyone in association with Bloodsnitch. Understood? Yes, sir! The legions of Spartan-like warriors give their battle cry before the law, willing to lay down their lives for queen and country. I doubt it would be the first time, or the last, in which we would be expected to give our lives for them, as the threat of war consuming the world continued to loom overhead. We approach Black Street, and the streets are filled with thugs and criminals, the likes of which had barely escaped hell itself for their acts against their fellow man. Yet we had an oath to keep, and blood would be spilled this day. But on whose side? I had yet to find out. I charge a barricade of wooden boxes and open the floodgates for the arriving horde of constables. As I release a hail of glass orbs spreading chlorine, arsine, hydrogen cyanide, nickel tetracarbonyl, and arsenic pentafluoride through the street, killing all in their path, animal and human alike. McCline gathers the fallen and sees they are all in consciousness, only just, as they burn and writhe in reaction to the prolonged effects of the deadly toxins, which now course through their veins. Unleash fear, and this army will fall to their knees before you. Tell me, what do you fear? I fire my revolver and inject several agents with psilocybin mixture upon my dismount. Obsidian, follow the ravens. And as if programmed into his soul, he knows where to return as he heads in the direction of the city outskirts toward the vision, shown to me via the compass. I draw my revolver and lay two criminals to rest with the first, entering the heart of a large pot-bellied man of elderly age and appearance, showing his blood-stained intent as the dead leech from his hands and cry out to me, the second entering through the skull and claiming on impact a thin, tall man, whose axe I did not wish to ever see exposed, as those attacked attempt to escape his loins in gaseous extrusions of past horror. McCly, clear a path. I believe I've found the entrance to where the inspector is hiding. How can you tell? Trust me. I witnessed Nightshade before me, luring me to him with her death on his hands, staining his path wherever he tried to hide. As McCline and the other constables ensure the arrests and bring the majority of the Blackstreet gang to their knees, I follow Nightshade's gaseous spirit to a fence with splintered posts and black paint, overlooking a ghostly building with boarded windows, rags as curtains, and a haunted exterior. Appearing as the slums of London with no life or appeal, decrepit and derelict beyond repair. The roof semi-caved in, and the door hanging by its lower edge. I walk up and peer through a hole, uttering those few words. Jack in the box. You'd better come in. He's been expecting you. I am welcomed into an underground entrance with candelabra and deer antlers surrounding the ceiling, ornate fireplaces and ceremonial tables lined with row upon row of chairs, all bearing a cross with jagged edges, and a central statue bearing resemblance to a bat-winged creature, which I could only describe as demonic, portraying their true allegiance not only to the damnation of Great Britain, but their souls as well. Fruit. The guard leads me through a veiled room with chains hanging from the ceiling with skulls and red candles, Symbols of the occult lining their foreheads, and lamb's blood staining their once pure white shine. Witchcraft. No, Scarecrow. A different kind of worship. This is not worship. This is sacrilege. Perhaps you're right, but our master indulges in such things, and yours is false hope, and pursuits for things which do not exist. Save your breath, martyr of disgrace, for my faith will not be torn from me. I admire that. 
but then you never fail to please us. Why side with them more? Why do you think I side with them? Go on, seek what you came for. The truth? Very well. August 4th, 10.30pm. Four people engaged in a game of poker with Angus Hart. Mr. Sedgwick, Mr. Biggs and Mrs. Amos, all playing alongside Monica Winters. At 10.45pm, a letter arrives and summons Angus to deter his three partners in the game, leaving him alone with Monica Winters and you. Angus Hard and Mr. Sedgwick were business partners to be with the East India Trading Company, earning a large percentage and profit from their trade. Little did Sedgwick know that it was scouted by Bloodsnitch as a front for human slavery, transport under controls of deck inspection, including a wealth contributory. Alicia was paid by Mr. Biggs, a current existing leader in the company, to steal the blueprints for a steam engine to a ship which would increase the speed of the vessel and decrease the time it took to travel between parts of the empire, equaling more human trade and increased wealth flowing into Bloodsnitch's projects. Sedgwick caught wind of this missing blueprint and double-cross from Mrs. Amos, an owner of a former steel refinery, who was in an affair with Sedgwick, but knew of Bloodsnitch due to her husband's identity, Mr. Amos. Mr. Gregory Amos, to be precise. A leader in Bloodsnitch under the Finch tyranny of Jekyll's time, a little while ago, it seems. Sedgwick was then blackmailed along with Mrs. Amos by Monica Winters, threatening to expose the affair in exchange for the blueprint that she had hoped to acquire after murdering Angus. She hung him from the doorpost like an animal and slit his throat, only to find his safe had been robbed, using her intelligence, given by her girls, at London's Crying Rose Brothel. She discovered Sedgwick had procured it for himself and set about selling it to Mr. Biggs. She would then kill Sedgwick and soon after, Mr. Biggs, upon chance, and place the blueprints into the hands of her true partner, in the company and in life, Inspector Moore, or should I say, William Anley, an estranged agent of Bloodsnitch and mentor of me in both worlds. You would share the East India Trading Company, its wealth, power and influence with Bloodsnitch, whilst your sister would expand brothels across London and the entirety of Europe, whilst you trade weapons and technology to bring about a world war and fulfilling Bloodsnitch's true prophecy, you killed your partner as you realised Mrs. Amos, Mr. Sedgwick and Mr. Biggs had been compromised, despite your faith in them. Their confessions were your downfall so you killed the only one you thought was capable of talking, your newest member, Alicia. It would avenge your sister Monica Anley's death, silence my witnesses, and I would hasten to guess the same with the others. Am I close? In a sky public close, Scarcrow. I must applaud your efforts. Really a fine piece of work, all through deduction. We've truly moulded you into a fine detective. Another moulded me, Winters. Do not take credit for that which you don't deserve. You only taught me to take a life, but my lord taught me to preserve it. Is that what you call preserving life? You've slaughtered countless members of my men in your pursuit for the truth, like some harbinger of death, and expect to regale me with tales of righteousness. True justice is a choice, to follow and live, or rebel and die. That is it at its core. Legal 
justice, religious justice, pagan justice. All is order via choice. And you chose to follow. Is that it? I did because I wished to, not because I had to. I chose this life, not tyranny. Bloodsnitch is freedom. Bloodsnitch is control and manipulation, hence why I left. Oh yes, you betrayed us as your moral, conflicted with our beliefs of bringing hell on earth as it were. And I wish to see the world burn in heaven's flames rather than its own. So you betrayed us, and we've been shaping your life ever since. My path was a choice I made alone, without Bloodsnitch. And welcome to the Origin of Ideas section of this podcast. Basically, this is the section of the podcast where we take the chapter that's just been read to you and break it down. So getting straight into it, we see the introduction toward gases such as phosphine, phosgene, arsine, nickel tetracarbonyl, amongst others. These gases weren't necessarily discovered in the Victorian era, but the process by which to make them was available. Now, this is one of those situations where you don't have to rely on historical accuracy, but so long as the fundamental elements that were used in creating a certain process or a certain item were there or available at the time, you can sort of bend the truth almost to accommodate for elements of your story. So, for example, we've done that in this case with the gases because a lot of the gases that were available at the time or the processes by which were available during that time could have been used to create subsequent gases. So it's almost like a form of alchemy in that Scarcrow has created gases that have yet to be discovered through the processes that are already available at the time. And just to bear in mind that just because it hasn't been recorded as being discovered by a particular person... It may have been discovered several years previous by someone else who didn't manage to document it. They didn't manage to bring a patent out on that particular invention or on that particular discovery. They might not have made it public knowledge, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't discovered prior to its actual date of discovery. That just means when it became public knowledge. And you can sometimes use that when composing your story. The second is more references to music. As always, we try to reference music and films and games in our novels as we go through, as we write them. And these are two references from yet two more Killswitch songs. As I've said before, Killswitch Engage are my favourite band, so you'll see that a lot of their songs pop up in our subsequent novels. And the references come from a song known as The Element of One, where Scarcrow lays his hand against the metal casket and he says, I will return to you. And that comes from the element of one. And then later on in the chapter, he mentions the absence of doubt breeds desire. And that comes from another Killswitch song titled Unbroken. The third point is a reference again to a film, in this case coming from Batman Begins. The partnership between Scarcrow and Obsidian, having him ride through Blackstreet on this dark steed, is reminiscent of a scene in Batman Begins where the fear gas is spread over Gotham and... Scarecrow is riding on a horse and as the hallucinogenic effects are taking effect all you see is Scarecrow riding this horse the horse has real piercing glowing red eyes and there's fire coming out of Scarecrow's mouth as he as he talks and he mentions this line there's nothing to fear but fear itself and that was one of those key moments that stuck with us and we wanted to sort of create as close to an effect as that as possible when writing it in this novel. 
The fourth point is that we see that Blood Snitch becomes sort of the manifestation of everything evil in the world because as soon as Scarcrow enters the lair of Inspector Moore, we're greeted by statues of bat-winged figures that he describes as demonic. He sees that there are skulls hanging from the ceiling on chains with red candle wax and symbols of the occult scribed into them. These are all symbolic to represent the evil manifested within this group of Bloodsnitch, and it's what we use basically to determine that this is the group that are responsible for the main antagonistic approach of the story. The final point is that we also come to realise the gaps in our story. Now, obviously, I'm not perfect. I'm still learning, as we all are as writers. And after going over this story, I come to realise how many holes there are in the plot, how little I've explained. And toward the end, especially in this chapter, we see that Scarcrow as a character has to explain and fill in a lot of those gaps that haven't otherwise been told to yourself as the reader or the listener earlier in the story. Now, this is partly because I wrote the entirety of Scarcrow in two days, but that's not to excuse mistakes. Of course, mistakes are going to happen, regardless of your screening process. And considering it was only our second novel, there's no real point to beat yourself up over it. I do, because I'm a perfectionist, but... In your writing process, there are going to be issues and mistakes that get through the screening process and things that get through editing. And it's just a good thing to recognize where you make mistakes and sort of improve upon them on the next novel. It's always something to bear in mind. And hopefully it hasn't taken away from the story. Hopefully you've still enjoyed it going through and we've still got the last chapter to go. Okay, that about sums it up for this section. Let's go ahead and get into the next one. And welcome to the tips of the trade section of this podcast. Basically, this is the part of the podcast where, as it says, we discuss tips of the trade for those of you who are aspiring to be authors or those of you who are authors already, just looking for that little bit extra. So carrying on in our four-part series, this is part three of the series now, in storytelling, the storytelling process. So this episode, we're going to be talking about the introduction to the plot in the sense that what is the story, the overall story that you're trying to portray? How do the characters find themselves interwoven into the plot and what is the effect it has on them and also the effect it might have on the reader. So getting started off, when you're introducing the plot to your story, it pays to plan ahead beforehand. Have a plan. What I like to do is bullet point what I want to achieve with each chapter and follow a plot. What I would have also accompanying that, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, is a storyboard where you have the plot being drawn in several different images and you sort of follow that with the story. So as you're writing the story, come back to that plan, those bullet points. You don't have to check them off like a, like a checklist. If it changes throughout the story, as you're going, if you find yourself going on to a different story, just change those bullet points to accommodate the story that you're starting to make. A lot of the time during the process, during the writing process, you'll notice that once you have a plot in mind, you start writing... And your mind takes you off in a completely different direction sometimes. My advice is to run with it because sometimes it can take you in a much better direction than what you had initially planned. We've definitely seen that in some of our works. The next point to consider is how do the characters find themselves interwoven into this plot? So we discussed in the last episode the relation of characters toward the story, how pivotal they are toward the story. Well, this sort of ties in with that in the sense that the characters 
they're not just going to wake up and find themselves in this situation. So what we have to do as part of the plot, when we're considering the plot, is how do these characters find themselves in this particular situation? So if you're writing, say, for example, a haunted house story, why do these characters find themselves in a haunted house? If it's a murder mystery, how do these characters find themselves wrapped up in this murder mystery that otherwise would not have become part of their life? Try to make it as natural as possible so that it doesn't seem like you're breaking the fourth wall in the sense that these events have happened because I say as the author that they've happened. You know, it's that it's that same logic when you play a video game and you're like, how does this make sense? And it, the only explanation you can come up with is because video games. So with your story, try to make it as natural as possible as these characters flow into the plot. They find themselves interwoven into this plot. And then leading on from that, think about the final point, which is what is the effect it has on these characters? How are they going to be affected by the plot? So we discussed again in the previous episode that characters can go through an evolution process in that they can go from being a character who's not really well known to a character becoming a hero or recognized within that fictional world. That would be the effect that the plot has on that particular character. But that's not only going to be an isolated effect. It's not only going to be that character which is affected by the plot. So these are the things that you wish to consider when considering the plot. The effect that it has on different characters. So for example, going back to the previous two examples, those characters who survived being that haunted house, how would they be affected? Would they have some form of post-traumatic disorder coming out of that haunted house? Would it have forced them to make decisions that would otherwise question their humanity? Would they be psychologically affected because of what they've seen? Would their mind be somewhat opened by the forces or entities in which they encountered within that house? All these things you take into consideration. Exactly the same with a murder mystery. Most murder mystery novels don't really hang around for too long after the murder has been solved, but yours could be different. You could hang around for an, an additional chapter and see how these characters were affected. So in being part of the murder, how would these characters feel being implicated in the murder of another human being, even though they did not commit that crime? How would they react? For those people who witnessed the murder, how would they be able to reintegrate back into normal life? You know, these are the sorts of things. You don't have to go into too much detail unless you want to. These are the things I would advise you to think about when considering the plot and the effect that it has on the characters. But also, just to add to that point, what effect do you want your story to have on your reader? Do you want your reader to come away from that story pondering on the topics that you've raised in that story? Do you want them to be just as affected as the characters? How do you want them to be affected? Do you want to raise awareness about a certain thing? Do you want them to feel compelled to continue reading in that series? What's the effect that you're going for? And how are you going to use that plot to influence how your reader feels about your book and subsequent other books. Okay, that about sums it up for this section. And that's it for episode 11. Once again, guys, thank you for tuning in. It really means the world to us that you would take time out of your busy schedules to make us a part of your life. And it's always a pleasure to be here with you, share this moment and share these episodes. Of course, we'll endeavour to drop all the links for you below to give you access to any additional information, any useful websites that have been mentioned during the course of this episode. So be sure to head into the description of the episode below and check those out. Right now, I just want to take some time 
to continue promoting a project that we've been promoting this entire season, known as Top Dog Studios. It's a painting and mural company that specialise in representing brands for companies. It's a project set up by a personal friend of mine, Callum Young. So if you want to get more interested in that, or if that's something that sounds interesting to you or someone that you know, be sure to head on over to Top Dog Studios' website. That's www.topdogstudios.co.uk. That's all lowercase letters. There you'll find areas where you can fill in your contact details. You can tell Callum a little bit about the project. You can select the budget for the project and the time scale in which you want it completed. Be sure to drop Callum a line. and I'm sure he'd be interested in your project. If that sounds like something that you'd be interested in doing or someone that you know would be interested in having their brand represented in a graphic depiction or via a painting or a mural, be sure to get in touch via the website. Okay, guys, once again, thank you very much for tuning in. Whatever you're doing today, give it 100%. Accept nothing but your best. Be the best that you can be. Stay determined and persevere and the rewards will come. Okay, guys, as always, it's been a pleasure. I'm Wayne Telford and I'll see you next time.